Hello and welcome. My name is Sarah Knight and this is The Possibility Podcast. It has been over eight months since I released an episode. When the pandemic set in, I was forced to make some changes in my life and like many people privileged enough to do so, I took the opportunity to pause. At the time, the Black Lives Matter movement was unfolding and it had brought to the surface for me many questions about my own inherent racism as a white settler in Canada. And with these questions surfaced also my responsibility as someone trying to use their voice for positive change and my feeling that I couldn't proceed with this podcast until I had taken a better look at a topic I have really only touched the surface of, that a human-wide reconnection to the earth cannot happen while we remain so separated from each other. And while some, mostly the white ones, continue to believe in, invest in, and assert their authority over others. Canada's history of the systematically violent attempts over the course of 150 years to assimilate the indigenous people of this country through forcibly separating them from their land, their homes, their culture, and each other, including children from their parents, cannot be erased or easily reconciled. Some reports estimate that up to 6,000 Indigenous children died while living in the squalid conditions of residential schools. How can that ever be okay? For a while, I could find nothing close in myself to reconciling with the acts of my colonial ancestors. I was not okay with what they had done with what I have in my history and in my life as someone who has actively benefited from the same system that has oppressed and killed so many others. And although I still am not, I can understand that as individuals, my ancestors were each a part of a much larger system, a very twisted one that had taken on its own life, and that my ancestors were really acting in accordance with the twisted rules of their tribe. Rules that, if we hope to break free of them, we must examine and do our part in making different choices. Because here in Canada anyway, we, the settlers, no longer have to obey those rules to ensure our own safety and the survival of our families. So, in resuming this podcast, I believe that I can do so with a little bit more light shone on my own areas of ignorance and with a little bit more courage and clear intention to move into understanding how inherently connected how we treat each other is to how we treat the planet and to try to be a better voice for that. Thank you for joining me again as I endeavor to bring you meaningful listens and hopefully support for taking even more of your own action in 2021. Hello and welcome. I am delighted to be back to the Possibility Podcast. Uh, It has been some time and I feel very fortunate today that after this break that I have taken, I get to speak with such an energized and energizing woman. Uh, I have with me today Mary-Kate Craig. Mary-Kate is a consultant, entrepreneur, and community builder whose work is related to climate change action and the transition to low-carbon living. 
Mary-Kate is involved in numerous grassroots resilience projects where she resides in Guelph, Ontario, as well as the creation of social impact organizations that use the power of business to create change in systems. She is a managing partner with Onwatan, an Indigenous business dedicated to ensuring that Indigenous communities are front and centre in fighting climate change. And as if this wasn't enough, she is enrolled in a PhD at the University of Guelph investigating the aspirations, values and barriers of Indigenous communities in carbon market participation. Today, Mary-Kate has agreed to talk to me from her perspective as a settler on the challenges, opportunities, and indeed necessity of ensuring Indigenous involvement and leadership in climate solutions. So Mary-Kate, thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, it's lovely to be here. Um, so Mary-Kate, can you tell uh, me a little bit about you, your background, and how you found your way to Anwatan? Yeah, for sure. Um, so my, um, my education background is I have an undergraduate degree in environmental science with kind of a chemistry angle and a master's in um, biology, so looking at uh, immune systems and frogs. So completely different. Uh, than anything that I'm doing at the moment. Um, I worked for a long time as an environmental consultant, um, and I did a lot of work around land remediation um, and you know, looked at metals and other contaminants and how we could live differently on the land. Um, but then I really got clear probably, probably about 10 years ago, I got clear that what I wanted to work in was climate change action. Um, and I just kind of declared it, not really having a background in it. I mean, I had a background in science, but I didn't have a background in um, specifically uh, climate change action or anything that would lead me towards that. So I, um, I made this declaration. I ended up leaving uh, the consulting job that I was in, and I joined an organization in Guelph that was all about uh, grassroots community action called Transition Guelph. Um, and I worked with Transition Guelph for a year as uh, an outreach coordinator. And that really gave me so much experience about like how to make things happen on a really local scale. Um, and we had already, uh, my husband and I had already been involved with creating an intentional community in downtown Guelph called the Junction Village. Um, and, you know, we had started, we, you know, had started moving away from having the jobs that we had had, and he had been an outdoor ed teacher for a long time, um, and, uh, and we'd started like a backyard chicken business, and like, you know, where you rented chickens, and we were just kind of trying things out, and becoming entrepreneurs, and trying to understand how you could use the power of business to create a change that you wanted to see in the world. Um, and in the process of that, I, um, I got in touch with some friends of mine who I'd worked with for a long time, who had started a pretty amazing company in Guelph called Shared Value Solutions. Um, and they were working uh, predominantly, almost entirely with uh, Indigenous clients around 
um, land use and uh, land relationship planning and a whole variety of things, looking at traditional knowledge collection and really supporting Indigenous stewards on their land. Um, and in this conversation about climate change action and what I'd like to try to be involved with and the work that they had come to be doing with uh, Indigenous peoples in Canada, um, I met a man whose name was Larry Salt, and Larry uh, is a former chief of the Mississaugas of the Credit First Nation. And he's just a really incredible, powerful speaker um, about, you know, this, about, you know, Indigenous people's involvement with climate change, but then more specifically, the need for Indigenous people to be beneficiaries of uh, whatever those solutions are. So there was a lot of conversation around um, how that could occur and you know, what the different models might be. Um, and we, uh, along with um, uh, Don Richardson, who was one of the partners at uh, Shared Value Solutions, we created a joint venture company called Enwaki that Larry Salt's the uh, predominant owner of. Um, and Enwaten is, uh, means calm weather in Ojibwe. And the idea of Enwaten was to provide technical support for Indigenous people in Ontario who might want to participate in the emerging carbon market uh, through cap and trade when cap and trade was uh, uh, coming into being. Um, and so this gave me an opportunity to start to be in conversations with pe people who were in communities and you know, had an interest in um, carbon and the, the possibility of opportunity, economic development opportunity through carbon storage and sequestration. Um, and really in that process, I, I learned everything that I don't know, <laughs> you know, like, I, like it was, it was very loud for me in that process, like how much I didn't understand and didn't know about um, Indigenous people in Canada, about, um, you know, w what that actually meant about me as, you know, my parents came here in the end of the 60s, they are uh, Irish English, like uh, I'm I think I was born two years after they got here. Like I feel like I'm a, like a fresh off the boat settler. Um, and, you know, like to really get, okay, I've grown up in a country that has this, you know, horrific traumatic past. And yet it's, it was really not up in my space. I, it was not something that I had really understood. Um, and so it, you know, really what came from that was I really had an opportunity to start to read and start to delve into this and, and to just start to think about, okay, now that I am knowing some of this, like what's my role as like a, a, a Canadian citizen, as a settler, as a woman who lives in treaty relationship to do something to uh, help to kind of change this situation so that it occurred in a way that actually felt like it was more in integrity with how I would want the country that I live in to, to be. So, um, so that's, that's kind of where things started within and Watton. And uh, I mean, Don and Larry were already streets ahead. They were, you know, I mean, Larry's been 
you know, in the indigenous political world for his whole career, he's an incredibly vocal, um, you know, spokesperson for this uh, issue. And I, um, I just started going to different things with Larry and, and, you know, like helping to create presentations or doing some of the research around things. Um, and, you know, we, we, you know, we, we were just kind of working together and trying to work out what the process was. But in that process, I also started to understand that there was not a clear entry point or a clear way for Indigenous stewards in Ontario to participate in the cap-and-trade market or the carbon market of any kind. Um, it, and I mean, as it happened through the stroke of a pen, Ford got rid of that opportunity that people had for years been, you know, learning about and trying to understand. But even if that had not occurred, there was not a clear entry point for Indigenous people to be involved with that. So, so there was already a situation where Indigenous people were not at the table, not in the conversation, not really considered in um, what was being created. Yeah. Wow. So there's um, a whole bunch of different ways that I could go with what you just shared. Thank you so much. Uh, you're, you know, before we started recording, we talked briefly about the um, potential discomfort of moving in to face our own ignorance, all the things that we don't know. And I mean, a part of that is the is the reframing of it. Um, turning a situation from something that leaves you feeling exposed and vulnerable to attack into one that leaves you feeling exposed and open to learning new things. And right from the start with your your own personal declaration to move into working with and for climate action, whatever that looked like, and then letting that lead you into all kinds of unknown territory. Feels like you're continuing to do that. And I uh, feel inspired um, and also a sense of uh, understanding. I, I hope that I am and am continuing to do the same thing. I resonate with your um, inhibitions, maybe, <laughs> around facing ignorance and moving into those uncomfortable places. Um, but, you know, it's interesting because, again, it's kind of, it is privileged to be able to do that. You know, I have... Um, I have enough in my history that allows me to feel confident in my ability to access resources, information, support, so that this step into the unknown and feeling exposed doesn't lead to something that I kind of fall face down in and find that there's nobody there to pick me up. And I think that that can make my perspective on any of the potential challenges that while we're talking about the Indigenous people today, Indigenous communities face, my perspective on that is is completely skewed. I cannot understand the perspective of, of others who have come through this incredible violence um, in Canada's history, somehow survived, um, weren't completely assimilated, and are still here trying to 
teach us <laughs> trying to get involved. And so it's, I would love to hear more about this, the lack of the entry point for their participation, because, you know, a lot of your work and what I've read and some of what you pointed us towards here now is that they are the, the, the natural ones um, or many of those communities, the natural people to support this huge transition that we may need to make, the natural people to benefit from it because of the tradition with which they have emerged from, which is one of active reciprocity. So to me, this idea that, you know, whatever they're going to receive is going to go back into, into their efforts. Um, so I would love to hear your thoughts on that, whether what I have just said has completely backslid into misunderstanding, and also a little bit more on why there wasn't an entry point, and maybe what an entry point would look like. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I guess a couple of thoughts on that is, is first of all, and this, this was something I had to try to understand in looking at this, is that like really what this comes down to and what I've become um, f feeling very passionate about is that indigenous people sh should be managed, be able to be the managers of their own traditional territories. So they're, they should be the people who are making the decisions on what occurs in their territories. They should be the beneficiaries of what happens in those territories. And that that does not necessarily mean that, that they're all going to, um, you know, move towards natural climate solutions or they're all going to, like, sometimes they're going to move towards, um, you know, other extractive industries. And that's the decision of those nations. And that's the, the important thing. Because otherwise we get into the situation that has happened before where, you know, environmental groups say, oh, I'm aligned with nations managing their land but but as long as they manage them how I think they should be managing it so I think that it's really important to get that as a very clear thing that what I'm in support of is indigenous people in Canada managing their traditional territory in the way that makes sense for their community aspirations so that you know and my experience of um, and in the reading that I've done around this and my experience of that is, you know, when Indigenous people are the, the managers of their land, they will make decisions that benefit their land. That's, that's, that is, that's just the framing that most Indigenous people are looking through. Um, and so from a climate change perspective, I think the number one thing that uh, we could do in Canada is to ensure that Indigenous people in Canada are the managers of their traditional territory. And that will look really different in different parts of Canada. It's not saying like um, uh, now they're, they're managing their territory and now we're just walking away. And, you know, like this will look different. This will need to be co-created, but this needs to be co-created on the basis of what those nations want and need to create. And, and often you know, some areas of traditional territory will have a number of different nations who are involved. It's not like it's going to be one nation and one, there, there will be a number of different nations. Um, and some of those will not agree on how the land should be managed. And that 
should, that is fine. You know, like that, that needs to be part of the discussion about how people are going to now uh, shift and change and work together and, and work this out. But this is not for, um, this is not for me to be involved with. That's not my conversation. And it isn't, you know, it isn't for the government to be involved in or to declare how that needs to be. This needs to be worked out um, with those nations so that they are able to um, you know, de determine what's going to work for them. And it won't look the same. You know, we have, we have a huge number of Indigenous nations in, uh, in Canada. You know, we have you know, well over 600 individual nations. Each of those nations makes nation to nation agreements. Like so they make agreements at the same level as Canada. They don't make agreements at the level of a province. They are, you know, they are at the level of Canada. They are a nation. And so the agreements that are made have to be at a nation to nation level. And the projects that are happening within those traditional territories, those projects need to um, be created in such a way that the Indigenous people in those traditional territories are the beneficiaries of them in the way that they make sense. So it isn't for a Crown government to say, you know, well, this nation has only 5% of this territory and so they get this amount. That's for those nations to work out how they want to distribute funds. It's own source revenues, their revenue. It's not revenue that they should then be spending hours and hours creating grant applications to ask for that money. It's this money needs to go to those nations to create the, uh, the systems, the capacity, everything else that is required for them to be able to manage their land in the way that makes sense for them. And that's the change in thinking that I think as Canadians, we don't really always understand. We don't understand that, that this is not our land. And, and this, and it doesn't, to me, it doesn't need to come down to a long drawn out discussion about ownership. It is a discussion about management. It's a discussion about who gets to make the management decisions of the land. From a carbon perspective, we in Canada at the moment, we have not delineated who has the right to manage the carbon on most of Canada. So this becomes a huge barrier in actually creating natural climate solutions, which is about protecting land. It's about restoring land. Um, it's these types of um, natural climate uh, solutions, things like planting trees, you know, looking after old growth forests, making sure that peatlands stay in, intact, um, or restoring wetlands or, you know, areas that have been, uh, all of these types of um, uh, systems that we want to see. We know that in Canada, we have the most incredible climate change uh, opportunity because we have just such incredible natural resources. We have these incredible natural areas and the way that we manage them really has a huge impact on, um, you know, potential climate change uh, implications. 
And on a global scale, what happens in Canada really, really matters on a global scale. And the fact of the matter is the people who should be making the management decisions around those lands are the people who know those lands. <laughs> and the, it isn't about people going up into those lands to try to create something. The people who live in those lands now, who actually walk those trap lines, who actually are out in those forests, who, you know, who aren't just thinking in terms of carbon sequestration or storage, that's like a tiny piece of the puzzle. For, for people who live on the land, they're talking in terms of caribou and moose populations and actually creating biodiverse um, uh, spaces and medicines and, you know, like what's actually there, like their land connection is related to everything. It's related to their health and their well-being. And so it is not for somebody elsewhere to come in and tell anyone uh, in a nation how they should be managing their land. So I think that's that's been really important for me in this in this process and understanding this. Yeah. And I I mean I love the feeling of being illuminated and what you have just said there is so illuminating. And the big difference between, you know, what you have so clearly outlined that this is their land. And so they're going to make decisions that benefit their land, but those decisions may not tick all the boxes that I think that it should tick to look like a national um, climate action plan. Um, and that that is, it's not what they're here for. You know, the, the Indigenous peoples of Canada aren't here to fix our problem. We have to hand back to them what they are here for, which is to live with their land and take care of their land. And I really appreciate in that you have really answered what my next question was for you, which is, you know, what is your role as a settler in this? And you've made that very, very clear. Your role is to ensure as best you can and to keep paving the way towards that kind of stewardship isn't even the right word here. Role, um, participation, the management of the land of Canada, that it's rightfully returned to the people to whom the land belongs to, and that your role isn't to say what that's supposed to look like. But could you speak to me a little bit more about that? Have I, again, did I, did I, did I backslide? I don't want to, I want to make sure that I get this because, because I think it's really important. You know, using this privilege of doing a PhD, which it just, as you said, it's a complete privilege. It's like, it's like a complete you know, opportunity on my part to like delve into things and go down rabbit holes and look at things. But I'm really clear, like, like I want to use that opportunity to create something different, like to try to actually move the needle on something. And so I'm also clear that I can't know what that is. Like, so, so if I was to go in and be like, I think this and this and this is what should happen, then I am just repeating what has happened so many other times before where someone from the outside will come in and say hey i think you should do this this and this and then we end up with you know the the horrific situations that we have now with communities on boiled water advisories or you know people with with systems that aren't working like like these ideas that are coming forward have to be generated from people in the community like like there has to be but i can see that that for some people in communities, they're like, I don't, 
I don't necessarily have an understanding of what is this thing, this carbon market. Like it's like a stock market for air. It's like a confusing, weird thing. Like how would that, so I get that I could have a role in trying to like, um, like help bring the knowledge and opportunities forwards that could be useful. So around kind of capacity building um, the angles, it's kind of like here, I could try to gather people in a conversation that might be of use to other people. And that's also not to say that I think that all Indigenous people should be involved with carbon markets, because I don't. There's like a whole controversy around you know, this idea of natural climate solutions being linked to carbon offsets, that's a controversial thing. And that is, that is something that people within nations, they need to decide. You know, there are some people who would say it is not okay that nature is commodified and that, that commodifying nature is just more of what we've already done. It's taking us down this neoliberal path that we've already been treading that has shown us that, you know, if you're just using markets to drive systems that you're not going to get to where you want to get to. And it's like trying to solve the problem using the thing that got you into it in the first place. There are some people who believe that that is like, that, that means that they should not be involved at all. There are other people who are like, I could be involved with um, uh, offsets, but I don't want to sell to these people. And they might have, um, you know, like a, a group, you know, or, of organizations or types of people or um, that they're like, I'm not going to sell to them, but I'm, I'm, I'm willing to do it in this way, but not in this way. And, and there will be other people who are like, I, I, I really get it. I get that this is part of a transition plan. And um, the offsets are part of the way that we're going to be able to get to where we need to get to. And they're inspiring, you know, this type of activity around natural climate solutions and indigenous people in their communities can be the beneficiary of that and to start to create a conservation economy. And they might say that makes sense to me and I want to move forwards on that. So I really get that my role is to help to create a network of conversations that can help to move this forwards. And it's also to listen to what it is that people in communities need in terms of like knowledge that they haven't got at the moment and try to work out how to bring that to them, to move it towards a place that I would like to see it, uh, see it go in terms of like a changing climate. And, and what we can do, you know, I mean, so for me, it's about more trees in the ground, protecting the spaces. It's about indigenous stewards as guardians, you know, being the managers and decision makers and beneficiaries of the resources in their territory. Um, you know, it's, it's about, um, you know, not having development projects uh, ripping through you know, big peatland areas, like, like, those are things that are important to me. But I'm also totally in a space where I'm like, I also get the people in nations need to be able to have jobs and make money and they need to, you know, they need to understand and manage their land in the way that makes sense for them. So I think that's, that's kind of my position and all of that. Beautiful. So clear. So clear. So out of that, there's two questions emerging. One, what is the status of the carbon market in Ontario stroke 
Canada. And then two, um, you know, what are the opportunities? I want to hear more about about Mary Kate's vision, you know, knowing what you know, what are the opportunities? If these connections were made and these doors were, how did you word it? Um, if these doors, entry points, these entry points were made, you know, these doors were opened, the management was returned to the people that know how to care for the land. Um, but maybe you could start off with that. So please illuminate me on the status of, of the carbon market in Ontario and in Canada. Well, we have two types of carbon markets. So there are what's called the regulated carbon market, which cap and trade would fall under. Um, so it, that would only be large scale uh, polluters who would uh, be able to participate in that market. Now, that market, um, if you're selling offsets into that market, there's a certain degree of um, safety around the sale because you know that you know there are like some big um, uh, emitters who need to buy offsets that fulfill the requirements of that market. There is another kind of market, which is called a voluntary market. And that's like, that's a market that you or I could buy offsets in, right? So, so if I went on a trip, I could calculate how much carbon I used on that trip and I could, you know, contact a company and I could purchase offsets uh, on uh, it within that market. So in uh, Ontario, we we did have a cap and trade market and that was linked to the cap and trade market that was in California. So we had Quebec and Ontario, both were part of a linked market that was in Ontario or in uh, California, which created, you know, like a, a, one of the largest carbon markets in the world at that point. Now, you know, Ford with a red pen got into power and over a weekend kind of got rid of that. So he, he, he got rid of, you know, many years of work that had gone into creating that. And, um, and that meant, so we do, we then, that opportunity disappeared in Ontario. So we then did not have a cap and trade market. We actually didn't have a approach to climate action really at all. We, instead, we started fighting things in the courts and saying, you know, fighting between jurisdiction. Did the province was kind of asserting that the, that the uh, federal government shouldn't be able to tell them what to do around carbon tax. And we kind of went into that um, argument instead. And the, the interesting thing in that is until we got rid of a cap and trade, we actually didn't have a carbon tax. We had cap and trade. <laughs> we didn't have a carbon tax. It was getting rid of that meant that then the federal backstop kicked in. Then we had a carbon tax, right? So, so it was, is a, a very interesting um, position. So for indigenous people who had been seeing that there could be an opportunity within their traditional territories to create a project, that uh, possibility disappeared with the cap and trade, but then there remained a possibility of creating something through the voluntary market. Now, in Ontario, we don't have any Indigenous-led uh, carbon projects that exist within the voluntary market. Within all of Canada, there are really only a handful of these types of projects. There are projects, there is a really incredible project on, in uh, British Columbia, um, which is a, a group of nations called the Coastal First Nations who have come together 
um, and over a very long period of time, um, in conversation with the provincial government and with the federal government, they have created a conservation economy where those nations work together and they, um, they manage their, um, their forested areas and they create carbon offsets which are sold into a voluntary market in uh, British Columbia. Um, the primary buyer of those uh, offset credits um, is the British Columbian provincial government um, who is carbon neutral, so says we are a carbon neutral government and they are carbon neutral by virtue predominantly of buying those Great Bear credits. Um, so that's something that works, right? Like, and, and, and there are, there are parts of it that, that maybe don't work as well as it should in that, that there are offsets that are not sold. So they, they create more than they are selling. And to me, it's just horrible to think that there are any of those offsets that are unsold because that is the most incredible, beautiful project and showing the, this whole vision actually functioning. Um, so to me, that's like, it's like, it's like, I keep anyone who says to me, oh, I'd like to buy, um, you know, indigenous uh, carbon credits. I'm like, go to that, this project, go over there. Because um, there's, there's, to me, there's no way that there should be any uh, of those credits unsold. Um, so there's, there's also some smaller scale projects um, that are indigenous led, um, uh, also in BC. Um, in Ontario, we, we don't currently have any Indigenous-led uh, projects that uh, are in place. And, and there, there also is, so there is this, one of the biggest barriers in Canada is that the um, nations have, you know, the right to manage, in some cases, uh, they have the right to manage their reserve lands those reserve lands are very, very, very tiny little spaces for the most part. So it's, that would be a space where they could move forwards on a carbon project now, but potentially for some of those nations. Um, but it's a, such a tiny space that it wouldn't make, uh, it wouldn't make sense, right? That it would be, um, you wouldn't have the scale to, to make it make sense. Now it would, would make sense if you were talking about it from a traditional territory. So those nations would have the right to use their traditional territories for fishing and hunting and um, you know other purposes uh, related to their livelihood. But what is undelineated in Canada at the moment is who would have the right to create the carbon credit on those lands. So the you know is it the provincial government? Is it um, like, uh, is it the, the nations? Is it like all these questions are not really understood or, or known at this point. So those rights holders, those indigenous people um, who, um, whose territory it is, at this point, there is not a clear jurisdiction for those indigenous people to create projects on their territory. Um, um, which I know is is crazy, but that that at the moment 
the way it's set up, we have this thing called Crown Land, and this thing called Crown Land is also Indigenous territories. So, so those are the same lands, and at the moment, the way it's set up is provinces think that they have the right to um, manage those lands. You know, they have the, they, they make the decisions around them. And on the other hand, you have nations who say, well, that's my traditional territory. So right in there, that is, that's the crux of the jurisdictional problem that we have at the moment that we're facing in Canada. If we want to move forward natural climate solutions rapidly, we have to do something around this undelineated uh, jurisdiction. Mary-Kate, you know, you've just spent uh, three or four minutes explaining that problem to me. I feel unbelievably frustrated. It seems like such a no-brainer. You work in this all the time. That must be so frustrating to see such an obvious solution right there before us. And yet, how many, how many loopholes have to be jumped through to get there? What is there a clear route to, to making that happen? What is with, what is the status of this crown land thing? How firmly embedded in, is that? Is it possible to even think that anywhere in the near future, the management of indigenous traditional territory could be handed back to indigenous people? That is happening uh, uh, all over Canada through Indigenous protected and conserved areas. So we are creating um, areas all over uh, Canada that are uh, under Indigenous management, Indigenous law. They are created according to those Indigenous stewards of the land. What isn't in place at the moment is a clear way for there to be a economic um, benefit through carbon from those indigenous protected and conserved areas because and this comes down to an interesting thing called additionality so in order to create a carbon project you have to show that you have done something in addition to what would normally be done right so the idea of a carbon offset is you are creating something more right? You're sequestering more carbon. So you got to be planting more trees. You got to be, um, you know, creating, a, a protecting something that wasn't going to be protected, but you have to show that, that whatever it is that you're protecting had a threat to it. You know, if it doesn't, if it's not under threat in some sort of way, then you could say, oh, I'm, oh, I'm protecting this land. And then the people who are doing the accounting would say, well, they're, that that land wasn't threatened. So protecting it doesn't necessarily give you additional carbon, right? So you'd have to show, well, they weren't gonna put a road through here and we've now created a carbon offset. They're not gonna put a road through there. They're not going to, you know, break apart this peatland area and open it all up and allow thousands of years of carbon to be re-released into the atmosphere. We're not going to do that. So that's an additional thing that we were going to do and we're now not going to, right? So you have to show additionality. So if you have an area that's a protected area um, that you, were, you had already moved forwards to say, we're protecting this area, and we want a carbon credit from it, then the answer is, well, no, you protected it. So there's nothing in addition 
to what you were already going to do. So you, you haven't reached the requirements for additionality. And you could say, well, we used to cut trees down here and we are now not cutting trees down here. Now, there's a thing called carbon leakage. So if you say, we used to cut trees down and we're now not going to cut trees down, if the province who is making the decisions about where trees are cut down says, oh, they're not cutting trees down there, we're going to cut more down over here, then you, you, you haven't created you know, an overall carbon benefit. It has to keep going back to does the atmosphere care? You know, like it, it, it does this actually make a, a, a difference for the atmosphere. So from an, for an indigenous community who has, you know, actually gone through all that work to create a protected area, and then they say, well, we'd like to create carbon credits as a center uh, off that. If they've already created the protected area, there's a good chance that they're going to say, well, no, you didn't reach uh, additionality. And even if they say, well, we, we were cutting trees down, but now we're not, they, they province could say, yeah, but we started cutting a whole bunch more trees over here. And so they, again, can't get credits. Now, the other thing is in order for those nations to show that they have the right to be the beneficiaries of um, the carbon in these other lands, they would need to sign something called an atmospheric, atmospheric benefit sharing agreement. So the big project out in BC, Great Bear, that is set up with an atmospheric benefit sharing agreement between the province and between that group of nations that says that, that they, there is an agreement on the atmospheric benefits, right? And so once you've got that agreement in place, then you know, any nation could say, okay, I've got, I, I own the carbon rights in this land. So I own the management decisions around carbon or sequestering carbon or whatever uh, within this land. So outside of BC, there, there are none signed. And there are nations who would like to, you know, have maybe spent years saying, hey, we'd like to create this carbon project. They would have to get the provincial government to engage in a conversation and then agree and then sign that atmospheric benefit sharing agreement. And no province has done that outside of British Columbia. So, so who's looking at these? Like, it just seems like a whole series of bureaucratic barricades. Yeah. Who's addressing that? I mean, that's obviously what Unwatten is doing. Is it, but is, is there, is there anyone at, at, at government level? Is there any body that's been set up to address these bureaucratic barricades or is it still the, the role of nonprofits and consultancies and organizations like yours? I mean, there are people within the federal and provincial governments who, you know, are, are engaged with Indigenous people in conversations about different things. But have we, um, have we actually addressed what's happening in these jurisdictional issues in Canada? No, no, we haven't. And that is the what I see what, from what I have gathered. That is the main barrier to natural climate solutions occurring on a large scale in Canada is that Indigenous people have to be at the table, they must be at the table, they should rightly be at the table, they should be the managers, the decision makers in this process. And at the moment, our jurisdictional challenges are, are very, very great. Yes. Wow, Mary-Kate, I am so glad that you are doing this work. Um, can you tell me then? So. 
in the grand vision, a special task force is set up and all of these things are addressed. And what is the, the scope of possibility? What is your vision for how good could it get? Well, an interesting place to look now, not that I'm going to look down into the United States for how indigenous people should be treated, that that's not what I'm saying in this, but in the United States, there is a, um, a very different way that indigenous people are managing their territories. So for the most part, indigenous people in some parts of the United States, this isn't all over and this isn't that all nations in the United States are um, have worked out all their land claims. That is, that is not what I'm saying. But, but certainly for some nations that I visited in the United States who have engaged in these carbon projects through the California cap and trade. So under California cap and trade, you, you can create projects pretty much all anywhere in the United States except for Hawaii. Right, so so up in Alaska, all over Washington State, like so, there are some very large scale projects that have moved forwards. So, I went to one of these nations, um, and I, you know, you know, I asked a question about um, capacity, you know, because capacity is a huge topic, it, you know, in terms of uh, what capacity challenges there might be for nations to actually be able to do this in. Canada. And um, I went to this one nation who had engaged in this a number of years ago, and he just looked at me like I had two heads. He was like, I don't have capacity issues in my nation. Like, I have 500 people who work in my natural resources department. Like, we, we don't have capacity issues here. Um, but they, that, the, that group of nations who had come together had been working together since the late 1800s as a group of nations. Um, and they, there was a delineated area that they managed that was a large, large area. So it was like, now it, it was a fraction of their traditional territory, right? So if you were to look at a map that said, this is the traditional territory of those uh, nations, then that, that, was, that was a smaller area, but they did have the management rights over those lands. So it meant when the uh, California cap and trade um, system came into being and basically all that occurred was there was a comma put into that that said that these projects cannot occur on federal lands comma except tribal lands right so so the people who lived within lands that are tribal lands they could engage in this this in in creating these carbon offsets under the California cap and trade which um, you know, and that, that program was, was geared towards private landowners, but those nations could engage in it. So they have enormous land base that they were able to, you know, put into some of these projects and they were just able to move on it as quickly as, as quickly as they, as nations wanted to, they did their due diligence, they work out who they wanted to work with. Um, and then they could create projects. And there are, I don't know, I think when I looked at it last year, about 17 or 18 large scale projects that are happening um, all across um, the United States. And some of those nations have actually used the revenue from the carbon offset projects to buy back their traditional territory. So they've, they've um, you know, made a decision that, okay, I could get into 
you know, a, like a court uh, a kind of fight over for years about that this is my traditional territory um, and I may or may not get it back and lots of it's privately owned now. And instead they create a carbon offset project. They take the revenue from that carbon offset project and they buy a, another piece of land that it used to be their traditional territory. And then they create it as a carbon offset project and they use the revenue from that and then they buy the next piece of land. So, so some nations have used it for that down in the United States. Um, other nations, um, yeah, you, know, you can have a long conversation about whether or not that's okay, like right that they should be having to buy back their traditional territory piece by piece. And, you know, in some ways that's terrible, but incredible and incredibly entrepreneurial and outside of the box that they are using this mechanism to allow them to do what they're wanting to do. Um, and there are other n nations who you know, are really managing their lands in a really incredible way. And they're, they just change some of their management practices or they cut a bit less or they leave their trees in the ground for a bit longer. And that creates a carbon offset project for them, which is then able to, you know, create this own source revenue for those nations. So they have money that comes directly. And so, so there's, there's kind of clues in the United States for what this could look like. Um, and, you know, what this could look like here. If, if we had nations who had clear rights to um, the, the, their traditional territory, they could decide, and we had markets that were set up and actually functioning, and we didn't have the province and the feds fighting back and forth about who has jurisdiction, and we didn't have the provinces, you know, not engaging with this idea with nations and, you know, showing this carbon leakage and all the other things. If we, if we actually were all pulling in the same direction and saying like, we have this huge problem and we know that indigenous people are really uh, like that, that their land uh, management decisions are absolutely imperative to this. And we're actually going to set this up so that they're able to manage their territory and then be beneficiaries of the opportunities from that. If we were setting it up, I mean, it could happen very quickly. It's happened very quickly down in the United States. Um, the other thing that was really interesting was when I went to some of those nations in the United States and I said, okay, so like, how do you market these offsets? They're selling offsets into the regulatory market. And they looked at, they were like, we don't market our offsets. We just make them and we sell them. So, so, you know, we, we just have one buyer who bought all of our offsets for five years. Right. So, so it's like they can't make enough to because because the market has created the need for there to be these types of offsets. And so as soon as they make them, then they, they, they can sell them like they're sold. Um, so some of the issues that we've seen for nations who are selling through the voluntary market where there are these much smaller sales um, and much more effort goes into trying to make those sales then um, that, that, that's not the experience of the nations there. So interesting, you know, because um, look, as, as somebody who has, has long identified as an active environmentalist and, you know, who tries to be very conscientious about what parts of this system I engage in, I probably have spent 
sometime, <laughs> daydreaming about what a total system transformation would look like. This one falls down and another whole new system is, is, is born. And yet what you're talking about, yeah, okay, that like might be a way that we have to go. Who knows? Do we have the time for that? Like within, we can actually work with the system that's set up where we are, you know, still living in a way where people want the products that they're used to, where we want to consume, where we want to burn, where these things may still need to happen for a while. And so while we're undergoing the bigger scale transformations that need to happen, isn't it wonderful that in somewhere like the States, the market is set up, they can't sell their offsets fast enough. And the potential for working with that in Canada, like you said, relatively quickly, because that I think is now something very important to factor in. Okay, so what might be ideal, but also what is the time scale? It's also about like getting that we have a very small population and a relatively small tax base in, in Canada. So you're, you're not going to create a market in Canada that is actually really going to be able to create the benefit that we're requiring, you know, to have natural climate solutions in place across Canada, you're not going to source that. So you have to look to a global market. So there has to, you know, really what we need to be pushing forwards and seeing come into place is a global market where people in you know, all sorts of countries who don't have trees and, uh, you know, haven't protected their natural systems are offsetting the carbon that they're using by protecting the the systems that are here and that so so we have to be thinking in terms of that global uh, system um, and we can't let the flip-flop of you know province and feds and then election cycles and stroke of the pen sort of uh, um, decisions by uh, incoming leaders to change something so we have to set something up that can't just be torn down you know, like, so you, you have to put something in place that if people are spending years um, investing in creating something that, you know, the flip-flop of the voters can't suddenly put someone in who has a red pen and can get rid of it. So yeah. we have to be thinking in terms of that as well. Yeah. It's important. Yeah. And, you know, Mary-Kate, I want to wrap up soon. Um, I could, as I discovered when I spoke to you on the phone, just a few days ago before this conversation, I could talk to you for a very long time. And I must say what I've so enjoyed about this conversation right from the start is that the the minute I think I'm kind of getting a handle on things, you know, oh yeah, now I get it and I want to put it in this box, you say, well, yes, and <laughs> this is, this is, there's many different angles to this. It's not a straightforward issue. Um, and yet there's within it, there's so much possibility. So can you tell me what are for myself and for anybody that may listen to this? I know that you are involved in putting together some workshops. Um, what are ways that people can participate in this conversation and keep learning either through you and the things that you're involved in or through some of the networks that you're involved in? Yeah. So, um, uh, so yeah, I've been doing a webinar series with the, the Conservation Through Reconciliation Partnership at the University of Guelph. Um, and we've had the first of those webinars and we have another uh, three or four planned. Uh, there'll be one a month. And those are great conversations where um, just 
trying to work out what are the deeper dive conversations and who are the people that we might want to bring in and, you know, um, what are the case studies that we want to really drill into or look at. Um, so people will be welcome to either their free webinars and people can come and be part of that conversation. Um, I think um, in terms of, um, you know, what each person can do, I, I'd say you can measure your individual footprint. Um, your apartment, you know, which for a lot of us is kind of small because we don't go anywhere anymore and we stay in our houses. But, uh, but you know, it's, it's measure those. And if you have businesses, like measure your carbon footprint and voluntarily move forwards and purchase offsets, you know, like, so actually uh, don't wait to be told that our lives should be carbon neutral, like actually just create them that way. Um, is one and making sure that the offsets that you're purchasing, if you do decide to purchase offsets, like go out and actually do the research. In some parts of the world, there are um, projects that are happening that are not um, helping indigenous communities and do not have indigenous communities front and center in what's occurring. Um, and so it's just, cautioning people to be careful and and from my perspective a project that i could really say is incredible is the great bear uh project and so uh purchasing those offsets which can be purchased through nature bank um purchasing those offsets from the great bear that's important um that'd be a thing that people could do beautiful thank you I think the only other thing I'd love people to know about is UNDRIP, the United Nations Declaration for the Rights of Indigenous People. Um, and that's important because um, when Justin Trudeau came to power, uh, he came to power on the statement, you know, one of the statements he made was that he would implement UNDRIP. And from within UNDRIP, all, all of what is needed for these jurisdictional challenges to be um, worked out is already within it. So it's not like we have to reinvent it. Um, if we just implemented UNDRIP, it would occur. Um, so I think it's important for people to know about UNDRIP and uh, just get that it isn't moving forwards as quickly as it should at this yes. point. And, and I mean, as you said, so much of Sorry, I shouldn't say as you said, because you may not have said this, as I took from the brief conversation that we had before we recorded, that a really important part of that I can play as a settler um, with deep colonial uh, roots um, is the one of educating myself. Absolutely. I would encourage people who wanting to find out more to pick up books by indigenous authors and to read things that indigenous people have written or to listen to podcasts that indigenous people are part of or you know it could be as simple as listening to on reserve but um there's there's really incredible writings that are out there that really make this very very clear and are not difficult to get hold of so um beautiful and, and if people have questions, they can get in touch with me through the Anwatan website. And, um, and I'm happy to, you know, try to answer them or be in conversation about it. And I certainly don't feel like I have all of the uh, answers. I, I have a lot of questions and that's 
that's why I went to do a PhD as I had so many yeah. questions. Yeah, 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 that's clear. That's why you're, that's why you're a, a good woman for the job. A PhD, I don't think, or certainly any, um, anything that's done in the name of public service or service to a greater cause should be done from a place of thinking that we actually have the answers. So... Mary-Kate, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. It's been really lovely. And thank you for listening. In the time between recording this podcast and posting it, I set out to purchase some voluntary offsets through NatureBank. At naturebank.com, you can see a whole variety of projects you can support, and Great Bear is one of them. Emailing greatbear at offsetters.ca will get you to a helpful individual from whom you can purchase your carbon offsets with Great Bear at $25 per ton. What an important step we can take so easily. Enjoy, and you can find the details of Onwatten and some of Mary Kate's book suggestions in the show notes. Love and gratitude to you all.